Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As legislative days tick down, as members gear up for the campaign season, the National Defense Authorization Act grinds on as a continuing resolution looms. More aid from Ukraine is on the agenda, and an Electoral Count Act is under consideration. And despite former President Trump's mounting legal setbacks at the hands of judges he appointed, Support for him among GOP members and his base remain unchanged. In response to Ukraine's stunning progress at liberating its territory from Russian occupation, Vladimir Putin scheduled a sham referendum, or I should say rather, I should say scheduled sham referendums in Donetsk and Luhansk that would clear the way for Russia to annex the two provinces, turning them into Russian territory. He also ordered the call-up of 300,000 reservists and renewed his nuclear saber-rattling vowing nuclear retaliation if an inch of Russian territory, including the newly annexed uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, are threatened. Uh, he is hoping that his threats will fracture the global coalition that has so far held firm and imposed unprecedented punishments on Russia. Russian men of draft age have been fleeing the country as demonstrations, however small, have broken out across the nation in protest uh, to Putin and his policies. At the United Nations General Assembly meeting, Western leaders rejected Putin's threats as U.S. and Chinese diplomats met on the sidelines at the first in-person annual meeting of global leaders. Uh, Obviously, these were being held remotely because of the pandemic. Uh, The U.S. and Chinese diplomats met to reduce tensions over Taiwan, although it isn't clear that they will manage to do so. All this as President Biden for the fourth time reiterated that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense Uh, if it is attacked by uh, China. Uh, The United Nations is reporting on uh, North Korea's nuclear and missile programs as the U.S. carrier Ronald Reagan uh, made a port visit to Busan, something that is aimed at much, uh, I suspect, at North Korea as it is at China. The Iranian regime is on the receiving end of widespread demonstrations and rage in the wake of the death of uh, Masa Amini, a 16-year-old girl who was killed by the government's religious police for wearing her hijab too loosely. And in the wake of the latest Azerbaijani attack on Armenian territory, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi became the highest ranking American uh, official to ever visit Yerevan, at least since Armenian independence, uh, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, brokered a ceasefire uh, between the two nations. And we want to, at this moment, take a moment uh, to express our deepest condolences to Secretary Blinken on the passing of his uh, father. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who heads the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief uh, Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and co-hosts the Brussels Sprouts podcast uh, that Um, anybody who follows the transatlantic relationship should be listening to, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome to the program. Good to have you back. Uh, And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and uh, our coverage of the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Michael, thanks very much uh, again for joining us. And as we've been discussing over the the last couple of weeks, right, legislative days are dwindling as lawmakers prepare to leave town for what is going to be a hotly contested and highly consequential, they always are, but a particularly consequential uh, campaign uh, season. Uh, And it looks like there is some uh, effort to at least try to accelerate the National Defense Authorization Act process uh, as well as sort of pave and grease the skids on a continuing resolution with a final sort of appropriations vote later uh, this year, appropriations measure voted on later this year. Bring us up to speed on where we stand on all of these negotiations, uh, because it involves Chuck Schumer and Chairman Reed and a number of other uh, player, senior players on the Hill. I'm not so sure I'd use the word accelerate in describing where we're going, but um, yeah, the fiscal year. Listen, hope and springs and eternal, Michael, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> so, uh, 
the uh, in a surprise move because we've been a little pessimistic about whether the Senate NDA would get floor time. Uh, Senator Schumer announced earlier this week that since the Senate is scheduled to be in for two weeks in October, that they would consider the NDA during that time. Uh, so that's a very positive move. However, uh, while we all believe that that what process will begin, there's still a chance that Schumer could decide to cancel votes during the two week period to free up time for many of his vulnerable incumbents to go back home and campaign. So while the process could get well underway, it may not get completed, but that still won't prevent the NDAA from getting conferenced and getting passed. So I'm still confident that, that we will see an NDAA before the end of the year. So we'll just have to see uh, what this Senator Schumer decides to do with the October schedule. Right now, they do plan to consider it. Um, you know, as far as the CR goes, uh, you know, we've talked about that every week. You know, there are there were some folks that were optimistic that we could get a CR done before September 30th. Uh, as you know, I've been very pessimistic about that, that it would come down to the wire and it, and it will. Both the House and the Senate are now gone. Uh, they will not be back until next Wednesday, and that gives them Wednesday, Thursday, Friday uh, to, to finish uh, the CR, and no one has seen any, any bill text yet. Um, now, I don't believe there will be a shutdown. I think it will get done, but there still are some questions as to what is going to be uh, in the CR. We do know that it will go through uh, December 16th, uh, which, again, you know, Congress seems to only operate when they have a deadline in front of them, so I do anticipate another short-term CR after that. Uh, to wrap up uh, an omnibus or a series of minibuses. There is some talk, Senator Shelby did come out yesterday saying we might need a two or three day CR later this week to buy them time to finish the, 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 the full CR. Because uh, there are some you know, outstanding items. Like for example, um, you know, I think the Ukraine aid certainly will be in there, uh, but the uh, COVID aid that the president has been asking for uh, will not be in there, especially after his comments on 60 Minutes last week where he described the pandemic as being over. Uh, Republicans have pounced on that comment. Uh, in fact, Senator Cornyn, who's in the Senate leadership, said, if it's over, then I wouldn't suspect they need any more money. So I don't expect that to be in there. I think there will be some relief aid, uh, several hundred million dollars, for example, for uh, Jackson, Mississippi, because they have, have a drinking water crisis down there uh, and maybe some others. But the big sticking point is going to be uh, Senator Manchin's permitting reform a legislation that Senator Schumer has promised would be in the CR. And it will be in the first one they do vote on next week to see if they can get the votes. However, there's opposition from both Democrats and Republicans on this. Um, and it's it's surprising, too, because uh, his, his, his permitting legislation really is something that, that, that Republicans would be generally supportive of. But right now, they don't want to give Manchin the win because they're angry at him for supporting the last reconciliation package. And um, there is actually a pro-climate reason to support these permitting provisions because they do apply to uh, renewable uh, energy as well. And in order to meet the emission goals, they do need to get these projects online quickly. But you know, with this bipartisan opposition, uh, I don't believe that that will end up being in the final CR, but we'll see what happens next week. Um, uh, where are members uh, on Ukraine, right? I mean, we've talked about this, about how some on the left and certainly some on the right uh, have been sort of breaking uh, away from what has been the classical sort of center. Um, I think support for Ukraine still remains strong. Uh, overall, but what's the sense that you get in, uh, and, you know, especially in the wake of uh, Vladimir Putin's comments uh, th this week and, and nuclear saber rattling? Only Vladimir Putin can make it seem as though people are threatening him when the president makes a statement the latest time he and other Western leaders have made the statement, if you use WMD, we are going to punish you. That's not a threat. That's just trying to get, that's called deterrence. Uh, and Putin is like, the wind can blow another direction. Anyway, um, you know, where, where are members uh, and are we going to see greater unity on this or is this actually going to be greater fracturing in the wake of uh, Look, I think, I think it's a really good question. I think when it comes to Putin's comments on using weapons of mass destruction, I think for the most part, members are pretty dismissive of that. No one really believes that he's really going uh, to do it. Uh, but when it comes down to Ukraine aid, well, I, I think that this package will pass uh, in this CR, uh, Ukraine aid in the future uh, is, you know, is going to be more challenging, especially if the Republicans do pick up um, the House representatives, which I think is, is the odds on chance that they will. Um, you know, remember the, the large package of Ukraine aid that passed earlier this year, the $40 billion package, 57 uh, members of House Republicans voted against it, uh, as well as 11 senators. And the more I talk to members of Congress, the more I see them coming up with excuses as to why they may vote uh, against a further package, uh, you know, arguing that more needs to be done to account how the money is being spent, uh, how we're tracing weapons and equipment that's sent to fight Russia, make sure they don't end up in the wrong hands. Uh, they're complaining they're getting a lot of backlash uh, at home. 
Uh, many of the conservatives now in Congress are, want offsets in order for that spending. If we're going to add spending for Ukraine, we got to cut it uh, from somewhere else. Um, so there's a lot of concern uh, about where this is going to be headed in, in the next Congress. Even uh, Mike Rogers, who's very supportive of, of this aid, uh, you know, came out the other day you know, and said, really, it just depends on the size of the GOP majority. Um, you know, he says if we speak out a small majority, it could be a disaster. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I am concerned about where we're going with this aid next year. But, uh, you know, so it's really and, and you know, we, we tend to have a very short uh, attention span. I mean, Putin can drag us out for years. And do we have the patience and the willpower uh, to last that long? And I think in a Republican Congress, it's going to be difficult. And I think, you know, I think we'll talk about Trump later. Some of this, some of these folks will take their cue to from from Trump because he's still viewed by many as the leader of the party. And, and, and just really quickly on that on that uh, last uh, point, right, uh, the former president has had some legal setbacks, including by judges that he from judges that he ported, certainly on the appellate court where he ported, you know, appointed two of the three judges uh, in uh, the document case. The special master appears uh, also to be saying that some of the president's claims uh, are incorrect. And it's going to be very, very difficult for lawyers to argue some of the things the president has continues to say. For example, of the FBI planting evidence and 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 the like, um, is it's not this is not affecting the president's support in any manner, is it? Uh, no, publicly, no, right? It's not. Uh, look, privately, I think there there are definitely members who uh, are trying to stay more silent when it comes to Trump and just wishing that this all goes away. Uh, but I'm still surprised that how many members I talked to, even some Florida Republicans, that said they would have a hard time choosing between Trump and DeSantis. Uh, so, you know, his, his grip remains strong, but is loosening. I mean, his super PAC uh, only raised $40 in August, which was a surprising number. Um, and we did see finally Congress take some action after two years to try and uh, right some of the, the wrongs of the previous administration by passing uh, the Presidential Election Reform Act uh, in the House. Um, you know, I think that's a very critical piece of legislation because it'll make it harder for lawmakers to object to results in a presidential election. Uh, it also makes it clear that the vice president has no authority to reject uh, a state's electoral college results. Um, so that has passed the House. However, only nine Republicans voted for it. Uh, so that's a clear indication of Trump's hold on them. And those nine Republicans are all Republicans that are not going to be here next year. They either lost their primaries or not running for election. However, the Senate has their own bill, own version of this that has 11 uh, GOP senators on board, which is enough to break a filibuster. Uh, the issue is that there's substantial differences between the House and Senate bills. So if there is going to be a final version of this bill, and there's not a lot of time to do it, uh, it's going to have to be the Senate version or very, very close to the Senate version. And it has to be done uh, during the lame duck Congress. Uh, Dove, I uh, want to bring you in on this uh, and just sort of uh, get your take uh, sort of broadly in the temperature of lawmaker, I mean, first budgetarily and where you think we end up ultimately, uh, right? I mean, I think we're at the consensus figure of about $50 billion. Uh, Michael, I mean, we've said it so many times on this program that it sometimes uh, escapes, um, you know, we sort of miss saying it as we, you know, focus on the mechanics, sort of what you're picking up from members on roughly where we end up and the temperature of lawmakers, uh, you know, on Ukraine and on, on Trump uh, as well. And we're going to have a deeper conversation that Jim is going to lead us in in a minute on uh, on where we are with the Russians uh, and, and Ukraine. Well, uh, I think Mike is right that uh, it really is going to come down. And Rogers said it. It's going to come down to uh, how big is the majority? There seems to be a consensus on this program that that majority could be less than 20. If that's the case, the people who don't want to in the House... And if that's the case, then the people who don't want to give any more money to Ukraine uh, could be a real major blocking factor. And frankly, unless the and it's really mostly the United States continues the maximum level of aid that we've been giving, uh, that's going to wreck uh, Ukrainian morale, which is very, very high right now. Um, and that's what I wrote about today. The Russian morale is in the dumps. They're running away, leaving their equipment behind. Um, Ukrainian morale goes up even more. But if the aid really comes to a halt or even slows down significantly, that's going to affect uh, Ukrainian performance because morale is the key to any kind of performance. So in that respect, Mike is absolutely uh, right on target. Um, more generally, uh, I also heard about the Schumer... Uh, read uh, agreement uh, and 
it's true. It ain't over till it's over. Uh, a lot of people are excited about the start, but you really have to get to the finish. I think 50 billion is about right. But guess what? We were talking on this program. It's north of 60. Uh, and so at the end of the day, and by the way, the administration is really holding fast to their number because they recognize that if they give an inch on this, then the floodgates open. And so you're going to have that kind of pressure continuing. Uh, and then the question becomes relative to timing, relative to the uh, actual outcome of the election, and frankly, relative to the impact of inflation on the defense budget, uh, what any increase is really going to mean. And, and uh, regarding the outlook for the president's support, right? I mean, there are, uh, you know, Republicans are under fire on a whole series of legislative, uh, the Dobbs decision being one of the most important ones, obviously, on abortion. Uh, Lindsey Graham, as we discussed in the program, has sort of doubled down on that. And for, you know, and some members have taken uh, their reproductive uh, rights issues completely off their website. And indeed, once they win their primaries, like Bullduck uh, in New Hampshire, they say, no, you know, I believe in the election outcome. Um, I mean, is, is Trump's support, is Trump's support as strong as it was, um, because it has managed to defy all gravity and all reason. Well, no what it, happens, and indeed, there are members that you and I, there are a number of members that we know who think privately differently than what it is they say in public for fear that it will have electoral repercussions. So they just heap love on him because they're like, look, it's key for my base and for my electoral survival. Well, two things. First, Newton's law really does apply. And, uh, his latest, the, the latest polls seem to show that his popularity is declining somewhat, not a lot, but nevertheless, the direction is not upward. And on the other hand, Biden's direction is upward. Uh, and I think depending on how the November elections go, if, if what we think will play out that the Democrats somehow hold the Senate and the Republicans don't have a huge majority in the House, that could well be the breaking point where a lot of people will say, well, look, you know, uh, Trump really has not helped us at all. And uh, you've got people like DeSantis and Youngkin in Virginia, and there may be others who are collecting money uh, in pretty good numbers and are just waiting for that break to uh, exploit it. Uh, on the other hand, right, I mean, there are a lot of people who also look at what Glenn Youngkin is doing and, and wonder whether uh, he is far, much farther to the right than and a number of people have said that they didn't expect him to be as far to the right as they were when they uh, uh, voted, uh, voted for him. Right. I mean, so he could break as hard to the right as as he is. He's just going to do it uh, maybe without a Trump overhang. Um, let me uh, bring Jim into the conversation. Uh, Jim, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. And, uh, you know, the, the universal take is uh, that Vladimir Putin uh, is making a desperate gambit uh, and that his annexation of Donetsk and Luhansk is to make them Russian territory and so immune from uh, Ukrainian attack and basically stop the war and freeze it uh, on, on these terms, right? Back it with a nuclear uh, threat. That... Uh, you know, it worked. It was self-deterring for a while for us until we realized, like, hey, wait a minute. Um, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's he's trying to advance, hiding behind a nuclear shield, and it didn't work. Um, you know, adding depending on how the winds blow, which I think is kind of interesting. Is this is this going to work? Because there is a concern among some that this will merely, you know, accelerate, you know, European pressure on the Ukrainians. Hey, let's stop this now. It's starting to get dangerous. Uh, will it deter Washington from and, and Brussels and, and other nations, uh, ultimately, no. do you think? No, no, I really don't think so at all. I mean, if you listen to what was being said at the General Assembly uh, in New York, uh, the UNGA, and what the United States was saying and others, uh, this is not going to work. It's, it, it, it's something where uh, six months ago there was this great fear that Europe was going to easily fold or Biden will not do enough and, and that type of thing. And that's really old think. I think we've seen since then uh, that the U.S. and the Europeans are, are solid in their support. I wish the Europeans would give more, and I'm not sure there's so much more that they can give, frankly, uh, in terms of the kinds of equipment that, that, the, uh, that Ukraine's going to need. But um, 
but I think for the United States, uh, we have not slowed uh, our assistance. I'm hoping that we will up the game a bit uh, with attackums uh, and and maybe some uh, M1s. I hope the Germans provide uh, the uh, Leopard 2. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on Schultz right now to do that. So I, I really think even with the winter coming, I think this is going to be not a time of uh, Europe splitting off, of Macron going to to Moscow and or to Kiev and twisting arms in Kiev to make a deal. I don't think we're going to see that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we can't let up on providing support and not just the high end stuff, but lots of ammunition, lots of logistics help. I understand winter gear is being sent to Ukraine as well. So I think I think everyone's solid right now. But that at the same time, we've got to double down the way Putin is. We have to double down, too, in terms of our support for Ukraine. Um, I, I, I should point out that Ian Bremer uh, is, is just tweeted out Russian Windows 22. It's the Windows symbol with the Russian flag on it and a, and a guy falling uh, from the edge of that. The former head of Russia's Aviation Research Institute died yesterday after an accidental fall, the 14th accidental death of someone from Kremlin's inner circle this year, if you're counting. Uh, so, Ian, thank you very much for um, counting. Uh, and it's not, not funny and it's awfully Stalinist. Uh, anyway, um, Vago, uh, uh, let me yeah, let me go ahead. let me reinforce something Jim just said. The you know everybody's saying, well, Putin's threatening nuclear weapons, but we're not talking about strategic weapons. We're talking about theater weapons, tactical weapons, and somebody's got to give him the targets. And uh, I just don't think the generals are going to be willing to do it. The they're being beaten badly. They are looking terrible. Their military has is embarrassed uh, and they know the risks of what happens if you fire off a nuke. So my guess is it could well be that giving that kind of order could be the end of Mr. Putin, because um, they'll say this is on far enough. Um, I, I mean, uh, look, uh, right. I mean, the exodus of uh, right. I mean, so Ukrainian men have been going back to Ukraine to fight even Ukrainian-American uh, and Americans and Westerners have been going to fight there, uh, whereas actually those of military age are flooding into Armenia and Georgia now to escape uh, or yeah. to go them back up at the at back up at the at the Finnish border. I guess my question would be, it is worth also considering what is it that we do? Because the Russians have tried to reduce the threshold, right? I mean, so whenever you talk to a nuclear planner in NATO or in the United States, there's no such thing really as a tactical nuke. It is, it will have strategic effects, right? And that's how the Alliance has considered it, right? So if you think you're just going to sneak a nuke in, that's not true. Whereas the Russians have tried to normalize this and indeed in their exercises, try to normalize the use of a tactical nuclear weapon, escalate to de-escalate. Um, you know, Jim, uh, really quickly to you and, and Dove and, and Patrick, if you want to weigh in on this, because Patrick, I know you've also got experience and you've studied this. I mean, what is it that we do if he does it right? He just may do it. He has defined the use of nuclear weapons as a regime, you know, existential for him is regime survival as well. So but what if he does use it and the winds are going in the right direction? Well, what, do, I what do we do in that instance? Well, I think I think there's we start off by saying, what don't we do? And what don't we do is become frightened or scared by this, by these nuanced threats. Uh, right now, we haven't seen any movement in terms of the uh, Russian uh, nuclear uh, hierarchy, a system where they uh, would execute a nuclear order. We've seen uh, nothing to show us that they're getting ready for something like that. Uh, so what we have to do is make sure that we stay strong and we keep moving forward the way we did when he first started rattling that saber a few months ago. Uh, that didn't stop us then. It didn't stop Europe. Didn't, Europe didn't start hand-wringing. Um, and we don't want to do that now. So the first thing to think about is that uh, we don't let him uh, be effective in using those kinds of threats. The second thing is we have to monitor what he's going to do. We have to try to figure out what will his targets be. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and, and try to figure out how can, what, how can we get those targets prepared for something like this. And as Dove said, we're talking right now, uh, we're talking tactical um, and low yield. So it doesn't necessarily have to be Hiroshima here, uh, which makes these weapons more usable, unfortunately, uh, certainly in the minds of Moscow. 
But I think what we have to do is begin to prepare for this kind of contingency. Where might he use it? How can we prepare for something like that? Um, and then, um, and, and then, what do we do? What does the West do in response to something like that? Above and beyond the rhetorical, uh, and uh, and that's difficult. Uh, I I can't sit here and give up, give out one, two, three steps that we would take um, over and above deterrence, you know. Uh, but obviously, if he uses a weapon, that deterrence has now been broken. So. So how do you how do you strengthen? What more can you do? But I think right now what we can do is try to figure out how he might use it, where he might use it, and make sure that we help Ukraine to be prepared for that contingency. Yeah, there are a couple of other things too. Go ahead, go. Um, go ahead, Doug. First of all, the Ukrainian forces aren't very much concentrated. We know that, which means that he would be firing off a nuke if his generals are ready to do it. And I really question that firing off a nuke at uh, some city, Kiev, Kharkiv, whatever, um, that creates a completely different dynamics. That's number one. Number two is there are some things I think we could do now, uh, adding to what Jim has already said. First, we do have contacts with the Russians and with the Russian military in, in Syria, if in nowhere else. And we ought to be telling them, look, if he's going to keep talking this way, we're going to up our support for Ukraine. And until and unless the there are more than, uh, you know, there, there are fewer than 20 Republicans in the majority. And that only happens in January. President Biden's got time to start sending aircraft over there. A lot of people have said he should have done it before, but we ought to make it clear through the Russian military, from our military, that we're going to do that. And that Putin is running a, an even bigger risk that the Ukrainians are going to do all kinds of damage to him and that his generals still might not fire off a nuke. So I think there are some things we can signal in a very, very uh, quiet way. And the quieter it is, quite frankly, the more effective it'll be um, in order to get not so much Putin, but his to second guess whatever he's trying to do. I agree. Um, I I, Vago, I, I just to jump in, I agree with that. And I think we should add also that he might use uh, a tactical nuke for a demonstration shot in the Arctic or over the Black Sea. And so that's something else we have to think about uh, in terms of magnitude of one's response. It's one thing to hit a city. It's another thing up in the Arctic. So uh, but I think what Vago, uh, Vago, I think what Dove said about uh, upping what we might do with aircraft or tanks and getting that word back to the Russian military, I think that's definitely something I hope we're doing right now. Um, and uh, obviously the administration uh, did have a panel that was looking at this uh, in terms of how the United States and its allies and partners uh, would uh, would res respond to it. Uh, Patrick, uh, you, you've been very patient and I want to bring you uh, in, into the discussion. I was at the Air Force Association uh, conference uh, and trade show over the last couple of days. And it was a, it's a really, really terrific opportunity to hear from senior leaders, uh, both on the record and also talk to them in private. Um, and there, there was kind of an overwhelming sense uh, that the 300,000 call-up is, is not going to have that dramatic an impact in Russian capabilities, uh, that the Iranian drones change things a little bit, but not uh, as, as much. We heard from Sam Bendet on Monday, uh, Sam Bendet of the, of the uh, great uh, center uh, for naval analyses team, uh, especially some of the longer range Iranian systems uh, that have been targeting, uh, for example, M777s and rocket artillery and being, you know, having some success uh, in doing it. Obviously, the Ukrainians don't have as many of these assets that they need for this offensive. Uh, although we, you know, U Ukraine is benefiting from the best of our technology on that, right? Uh, so I suspect that in, in each of these things, it's it's step a step back for step forward. But one of the interesting elements uh, that was, was said by some uh, was sort of, a you know, what are the lessons to take away from it? And what I take away from it is that, you know, the notion of integrated deterrence, um, you know, ultimately failed. We did not deter Vladimir Putin from miscalculating, and that's what autocrats do. And indeed, a lot of the senior leadership is, you know, their concern is autocrats behave this way. That's the problem. Uh, and why real deterrence, concrete deterrence uh, is, is what works. Um, and, and maybe, you know, and the failure of deterrence has cost us trillions of dollars now, right? I mean, or, you know, whether in the rebuilding of Ukraine, uh, whether in economic damage, uh, whether in higher costs, uh, raised budgets. 
from from your standpoint, and I know that you talk to folks in the White House about it, and 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 consider this from a China standpoint. Again, I mean, is this, you know, in in, in the event, God forbid, a war between China and the United States starts, it, it's going to be fifty billion in the first hours of of that conflict, right? I mean, not even at the seven month mark, and and trillions of dollars. Where where do we where do we stand right now? How are your emerging lessons from this and the folks in the White House and what they're taking away from this as as they shape you know, deterrence aimed at China ultimately, right? Because I think that we're we're reaching kind of an interesting <clears throat> moment, right? Let's say, it, you know, Kinmen Island or or Matsu, uh, you know, the, the KMT leadership there or KMT leaning leadership, you know, says like, hey, look, you know, in a crisis, we want to be with China. Uh, we'll have a sham referendum. And then all of a sudden things get more complicated. How do, how, how, how is thinking evolving as, as we look at what's happening there now from your perspective? Well, it's a wicked problem. I mean, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine has basically put the China-U.S. rivalry not on hold, but at least on the back burner while we make sure that um, while we're trying to avoid a Cuban Missile Crisis moment, a, a near nuclear moment with China, we first have to actually live through a second uh, Cuban Missile Crisis moment here with Russia under Putin, perhaps. Um, Putin obviously loves to uh, use the threat of violence uh, to menace and to look 10 feet tall. Um, he also wants to keep his hardest liners on board uh, and not therefore conduct a coup against him. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, Edward Lutwak has an interesting provocative piece, as always with Lutwak, on uh, why this is an 18th century war, uh, that basically Putin has had off ramps, he's rejected them. And he wants to fight until all resources are exhausted. So if you're going to go down, he's going to at least bring you down with him. And that's why the fear that uh, maybe he does something totally irrational, um, such as a, a tactical nuclear strike, uh, isn't out of the realm of possibility. So um, even while he's bluffing, he could be not bluffing. And I think the Chinese are watching this with great horror, and yet they're putting on such a face. Um, so when Wang Yi you know, met with Sergei Lavrov this week, at the UN General Assembly in New York, um, you would not know there was any criticism of uh, of Russia's aggression. Yes, the foreign ministry back in Beijing said, "Oh, we want a ceasefire. We don't want mobilization of troops. You know, we want we want dialogue." But those words were so pathetically weak and soft, completely neglected by uh, Beijing. I mean, by by Moscow, that they really have no effect. It's just China trying to tell Asians, uh, you know, in the region in the Pacific that China's trying to have this balanced approach in their perspective. But in fact, um, they've been giving um, Putin the, the leash to threaten nuclear war and, and to keep going with this war, even while uh, he's being clearly set back by Ukrainian forces armed with Western arms. And this is a, a test case for what happens with, with US-China. And I think it's, it's, a sobering, it's a sobering test. I think there is caution probably in Beijing just as there is in Washington, that um, you know this is a dangerous game of geopolitics, and we have to be careful. And yet, at the same time, China's game at the moment under Xi Jinping is more nationalism as the economy slows, um, unification by force if necessary with Taiwan, more assertiveness, pushback on the U.S.-led system, pushback on U.S. influence in the region, give North Korea a, a, a sort of a long leash as well to develop and conduct its unprecedented missile campaign this 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 year, um, even as it prepares for a nuclear test. So China is not reining in these actors who are essentially threatening the post-Cold War order and the rules-based order that the U.S. is trying to support and persevere in. And I think that's uh, a big case. And on the military side, um, these are uh, weapons that are being used, whether it's uh, the hybrid warfare or whether it's conventional warfare, um, you know, that or even weapons of mass destruction that China wants to see how can they leverage their own toolkit, military toolkit to ultimately push back the United States out of the first island chain, out of the Indo-Pacific so that China can realize its its dream, even as the economy is slowing. Uh, you know, President Biden, you know, each time he made his uh, statement that the United States would come to China's aid. Uh, you know, aides have sort of said like, well, you know, we pre president misspoke. He didn't really mean that. We still maintain the one China policy. Um, then he said it a second time. Then he said it a third time. And now he said it pretty unequivocally on 60 Minutes last week. Right. Um, what does that 
mean? And is it having, from your standpoint in the conversations that you have, um, you know, tracked to and otherwise with our Chinese friends, but as well as our allies and partners, the, the impact of that uh, and how significantly it will feature in the conversation today, uh, which I believe is still scheduled uh, between Secretary Blinken, despite his personal loss, uh, and Wang Yi uh, on the sidelines of the General Assembly meeting. I think both China and the United States are moving closer and closer to their version of strategic clarity, but retaining tactical ambiguity. So what does that mean? For the U.S., it means, as you say, the president has four times now um, made clear his preference to defend Taiwan if attacked. Um, and t telling Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes, you know, is not just an offhand comment. That's that was a, a prepared answer to a prepared question. Um, and, and the point there is um, the Biden administration wants, while retaining the one China policy, um, wants to make it strategically clear to China that clear aggression against Taiwan will bring the United States into a conflict with China. And at the same time, he wants there to be tactical ambiguity about under what circumstances would we do that? And we're not going to clarify that. We're not going to talk about rules and missions, division of labor with Taiwan, at least not openly. Um, we're not going to even allow the Taiwan Policy Act of coming out of Congress to uh, unnecessarily provoke uh, China, even while we continue to push our relations with Taiwan. We try to support Taiwan, not Taiwan's independence, even though China will see it as that, but Taiwan's ability to control its own destiny free from uh, coercion and the threat of invasion. China's strategic clarity is the opposite of this, right? It's, it means we will use force and any other means we have to, to ensure the unification of Taiwan, because that is part and parcel of the China dream. Um, and they want that to be the message, but they leaving wide open the ambiguity about tactics, meaning, well, maybe they're not going to invade. Maybe they're not going to have a blockade. Maybe they're, you know, test firing missiles over Taiwan and, and saber rattling and cyber uh, is, is all they do. Um, and, and indeed, that is likely they're all to do in the, in the short term, but in the midterm and long term, a lot of questions. What is your expectation will come out of the Wang Yi uh, and, and Blinken meeting just really briefly before we go to North Korea uh, and the, the broader uh, uh, messaging of uh, the USS Ronald Reagan being, uh, you know, pay, paying a port visit to uh, South Korea? Well, the Biden administration has made clear that they want to keep their channels open for dialogue with China. Uh, and the Chinese are reciprocating with that. So whoever is at a meeting with Wang Yi, um, it will um, it, it cover a range of issues, not just the Taiwan issue, which is intractable at the moment, but also North Korea, because North Korea is set to conduct uh, nuclear tests. Um, and also we know from the readout of the meeting with Foreign Minister Lavrov um, and Wang Yi earlier this week in New York, that, that North Korea was discussed. Um, so there are other issues, Ukraine, uh, will be on the agenda as well in terms of the mobilization. I'm, I'm sure the U.S. will be wanting to see if there's any um, momentum that could be built in China to uh, urge Russia to pull back from a, a serious mobilization um, and to uh, pull back from Ukraine, to, to indeed go toward a ceasefire at some point. Again, um, thinking through uh, what's what Putin has done so far, uh, it's not likely to work, but at least that discussion will... Uh, retain that channel of communication. So whoever's talking to Wang Yi and the Chinese delegation in New York, um, they're looking for some common ground, even while we are absolutely loggerheads over Taiwan. Uh, on the messaging, um, I mean, do, do you, on, on, uh, just briefly on North Korea, any e expectation? I mean, what, what should, what is it we should be expecting and what does the report say that we should care about? Well, I mean, Foreign Minister Lavrov and Wang Yi um, talked about, at least from the Chinese news reports of these, this discussion, that um, they do have responsibilities as UN Security Council members. Um, so as, as North Korea has conducted an unprecedented campaign of at least 31 ballistic missile tests this year, all in violation of UN Security Council resolutions and therefore international law, um, you know, and expecting more tests, and ex including tactical nuclear capabilities possibly under this new nuclear doctrine with, with Kim Jong-un. Um, and the nuclear test site poised to go, has been poised to conduct a nuclear test since April of this year. Um, you know, China's thinking, how should Moscow and Beijing uh, deal with the United States and Europe, the other UN Security Council members, in other words, 
uh, permanent members on how to respond to this kind of a, uh, aggressive act. And they, they have two choices, right? They can say, no, this is part of the global security initiative that Xi Jinping is launching that is trying to build a new set of rules and doesn't want to go under, and, and they were forced to do this, just like Russia was forced to do its special uh, operation in Ukraine. Um, or they can actually nod toward uh, the sanctions regime that's ex in existence. The UN Security Council passed measures um, and China has a choice here. And if if Russia looks that threatening to China's interests, China may want to give a bone to the West on, on the North Korean issue after a nuclear test or if something serious happens. Um, but it's equally possible that they're just not going to help us regardless of, of what North Korea does. And that's unfortunately my I think that's more likely. And there's new imagery, by the way, Vago, this is an aside, but it's very interesting. Um, I saw it on the NK News website. Uh, it's a detailed imagery of uh, the Kim Il-sung University, which is, of course, Kim uh, Jong-un's alma mater. Um, and it has appears to have a massive new aerospace and missile research and development and education complex um, just being finished. Uh, and you think about how in the world does North Korea um, create a missile in space um, complex in the in the midst of such uh, sanctions, and the answer is well, they're getting support from somebody, and those somebody you know are are big powers like Russia and China. I've got uh, two last questions for you, uh, and I appreciate everybody's patience given how much we've got going on in the U.S.-China uh, relationship. But I also want to bring uh, the port visit uh, of Ronald Reagan to Korea. We have a tendency, and the world has a tendency, of looking about at our alliance. Uh, with South Korea is aimed at North Korea. But Osan uh, Air Base uh, is 300 miles from Beijing, um, something which I'm sure the Chinese uh, probably pay attention to uh, as, as well. How much of what we do in South Korea and with South Korea needs to be aimed increasingly, you know, to be aimed, continue to be aimed at the North Koreans, but also be aimed at the Chinese, because I think there's a tendency of people forgetting that geographic reality. There's the geography. Um, there is now the political will in Seoul in the UN administration, as he, in his speech to the UN General Assembly, talked about values, talked about democratic values. That was a direct assault and crossed the line that his predecessor wouldn't cross with China. Um, and uh, there's also just the reality militarily that as you have to, sh to have extended deterrence and show strategic assets to our South Korean allies, especially the UN administration's uh, demanding that as we've begun these extended deterrence talks, the Reagan uh, sort of deployment, the first carrier deployment in exercising with South Korean forces in five years is all about um, extended deterrence for uh, using the so-called strategic assets that are under discussion. But because these strategic assets are so big, just like the missile defense capabilities of South Korea and Japan, the United States, and by the way, there was a good trilateral discussion among Kishida and Yoon and Biden, um, and indeed, even Yoon and Kishida were able to have a, a, a bilateral summit, the first one in a long time, uh, wasn't beautiful, but it, it, it did make some progress. China is very much the subtext of those meetings. So um, China's aware of that, and that's why China, these... These movements, these decisions, these meetings do have an impact on China. Will they lead to Chinese cooperation? Not yet, but they might if North Korea acts up. Uh, and uh, you're also uh, a little bit concerned about the technological competition and the outlook for it as China slows down. Walk us through your case, what you, you're concerned about. Well, this is a long discussion that we should have, but both on the supply chain side of technology uh, and on the talent supply chain, there is a raging competition. I was just at an S&T fair at a leading tech university here in America. You wouldn't believe <laughs> the, the, the people salivating, the vendors salivating to try to sign up students. Um, and China's there and others are there. It's, it's a fascinating inside look at the future of this competition. Um, but on the supply chain, when Apple iPhone 14s are considering sourcing to a China chip manufacturer, at least we're seeing bipartisan uh, members of Congress raise questions and ask the intelligence community, hey, look into this. So Senator Rubio and Mark Warner and Schumer and Cornyn are all asking the intelligence community, look into this, please, because we're concerned about the supply chain um, drifting away and, and being uh, compromised 
both in privacy and intelligence by relying on China. We need to wean ourselves of that dependence in critical technologies. Um, but the talent supply chain is equally possible. So the Wall Street Journal, uh, a former Los Alamos scientist working for Strider Technologies, there were two reports this week about um, China basically stealing talent, uh, especially Chinese scientists who had been working with the U.S. academic corporate affiliations uh, over the last decade and how they've been just siphoning them up uh, with increased alacrity. And I think that competition is where the real competition is with China in many ways. This is a techno-nationalist competition at heart still, unless it tips over into the military sphere. And right. Taiwan is the, you know, the saber rattling, but the tech competition is where it's at every day. Uh, in, indeed. Thanks very much uh, for that, uh, Patrick. And obviously a lot more that we could be dis discussing if we weren't down to uh, the last three or so minutes of the program. Uh, Dove, I want to bring uh, you into uh, the conversation and what do you think um, the demonstrations in Iran uh, mean? Obviously, it's concern about Iran that has brought Israel, uh, the Emirates, uh, and obviously the Abraham Accords together, right? I mean, it's been a common threat that's, that's built the rapprochement uh, between uh, Israel and the Gulf Arab uh, states. Uh, and indeed, behind the scenes, a lot more cooperation with the Saudi, with Saudi Arabia, even, that anybody's willing uh, to admit. And yet we now have the religious police in Iran having killed a 16-year-old girl because she was not properly or, or, you know, she was wearing her hijab too loosely. And anybody who understands Iranian society knows that there has been a loosening of a lot of these uh, religious strictures, even though every once in a while there is an incident. What, what does this tell us and does this destabilize the regime at all? Well, I don't think it'll destabilize the regime any more than previous uh, mass demonstrations have destabilized it. Um, it's done a number of things, though. Uh, first, uh, the JCPOA doesn't seem to be going very far, and this is going to make it much harder for uh, the Biden administration to cut a deal with these sorts of folks, because all of a sudden you now have a woman, women's issue on top of everything else that uh, Iran uh, and the Iranian issue stands for. Uh, five people, at least five people, have already been killed uh, in the mass demonstrations, uh, demonstrations by women. Um, the demonstrations are likely to go on for some time. Uh, but look, uh, it's exactly the sort of thing that gets people to uh, demonize Iran. They've been critiqued in the United Nations overwhelmingly by most nations, except for the usual suspects. Uh, and so uh, in terms of uh, getting rid of the regime, I don't think that will happen. In terms of further stalling the JCPOA, I think that could be a factor simply because it's going to be politically inconvenient to do anything before the election. I mean, we, we're, we're only weeks away from the election and the last thing the Biden administration needs is a major issue over Iran where Republicans could say he's cutting a deal with people who, uh, who kill uh, little girls. Do you, um, and, and very quickly, what is the latest flare up between uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia mean? And what's the import of Nancy Pelosi's uh, visit? This is the latest time she's visited a conflict zone. Um, you know, uh, she visited uh, Ukraine uh, several times. She obviously visited Taiwan, uh, getting Beijing's attendance uh, attention, and and this time visited Yerevan. And soon after that, we had a ceasefire. Um, walk us through the nature well, of sort of where we are right now. Well, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, look, she's doing a, a very unusual sort of farewell tour um, going to these places. Uh, but I think that uh, the the difference between going to Taiwan, for example, which a lot of people said would simply and did inflame in passions, particularly in Beijing uh, and going to Yerevan and then you see a ceasefire is that uh, given everything else that's going on in that region, uh, she did something positive. And I think uh, to the extent that her visit and her influence made a difference, that's all to the good. And do you, do you see this as a wane? I mean, it, it was interesting uh, because you joined us for a few of those programs, Dov, uh, on uh, the war between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And everybody was stunned why Putin, as the kingmaker, was standing off, allowing the Turks to get involved in it. We've seen a number of other outbreaks uh, across the what is the Russian Empire. And indeed, we should say, right, Putin's move on Ukraine is part of the maintenance of empire. 
uh, or the aggrandizement or the expansion of empire. Um, does this sort of indicate, you know, that the United States becomes involved in this and, and brokers it? Well, it's, we, it's further evidence of Putin's waning sort of influence. Well, or is that overly trying, optimistic? Well, I mean, we've been trying to sort out the Nagorno-Karabakh issue for decades, quite frankly. Um, you know, they've fought several full-fledged wars. Uh, I guess the Azeris felt that uh, this was a great time to go after Armenia because uh, Putin and the Russians were distracted. Uh, and uh, they had done quite well against the Armenians the last time they went after them a few years right. back. Uh, so I think what Pelosi essentially did was kind of help bring a halt to that and not let the uh, Azeris or Azerbaijanis um, exploit what uh, the, the general situation in the region where uh, Putin, he can't pay attention to Armenia right now. And everybody knows that. But we have off and on, and the reason it's been off and on is simply because we haven't been very successful, but we've been trying to bring some kind of uh, modus vivendi between these two countries literally for decades. Uh, let me just bring this uh, really quickly uh, around uh, to uh, Michael. Uh, Michael, I mean, how how are Nancy Pelosi's actions being seen? Um, because for for some, I mean, as as Dove said, it's a bizarre swan song. For others, uh, there's a little bit of admiration that she, you know, is is going to some of these hotspots and sort of helping, uh, you know, focus attention. I mean, what's what's the perception of what she's uh, doing and, and how it's playing up on the Hill among members. Uh, frankly, um, behind closed doors on a bipartisan basis, there's strong support for her actions. Uh, Republicans were very pleased to see, uh, for example, that she went to Taiwan in the face of opposition from, from Xi. And this is seen as part of securing her legacy as a strong supporter of peace and, and human rights. Uh, I should also point out, right. I mean, there's a, a large Armenian constituency as well. Uh, you know, in the state of California and, and in her district as well, right? I mean, so you could also look at it from that perspective and say that just like there's a very strong uh, Taiwanese American and Chinese American community uh, uh, as well, if you wanted to put it in crass uh, political terms, although I think her drive is a little bit, uh, I, I don't mean to be speaking, for, is, is there a sense that her drive is merely constituent interest or it's actually a broader uh, a, a broader interest? I mean, look, she's in the, in the twilight of her career. Uh, not that she's ignoring her constituents, but her uh, interests and her responsibilities are far broader than that. And before we part, I just want to point out for our audience to check out Dove's piece, Unit Morale and Cohesion, Russia's Weakness and Ukraine's Strength. Uh, and it ran in the Hill. And I commend folks to check it out because it is a great piece. And I wanted to uh, wish all of you, uh, uh, Michael uh, and Dov Shana Tova, as well as uh, to our audience for a very happy new year uh, as we part. Hope you guys have a terrific uh, day, a terrific weekend and a terrific week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much.